Well, good evening, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started. It's good to see y'all here this evening. Hope that you're having a wonderful week. Excited to uh, study some more with you. We'll go ahead and start with a prayer, and then we'll jump into our lesson for the night. Let's pray. Father God, we are incredibly thankful to be here together with one another and to open up the scriptures. And Father, we pray that you give us wisdom and insight as we seek to know you better, as we seek to follow you more closely. Father, I am overjoyed to see our brother David Rhodes back with us tonight. Father, I'm so thankful for the healing that you continue to give him. I pray that you continue to bless his his recovery. And Father, we thank you for uh, preserving him and, and bringing him back to us Father, we thank you so very much for your love and your care. We thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Father, that you are a God of justice and righteousness. And as we think about those terms and those ideas tonight, we pray, Father, that you help us to do so in a manner that is edifying to us and glorifying to you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Okay, so we are talking about the qualities, characteristics of God. And tonight we're going to talk about God's uh, justice and righteousness. So as we tend to do, we're going to start with a, a discussion question. So we'll just throw this question out and talk about that for just a second, and then we will jump into the lesson itself. So what imagery comes to mind uh, when you think about the word justice? So when you hear the word justice, what imagery comes to mind, or what other words come to mind, or what do you associate the word justice with? A courtroom? Law. Yeah, so law and courtroom. Good. What else? Fairness? Yeah, absolutely. Fairness, law, courtroom. Say it again. Correctness. Yeah, absolutely. Correctness. Absolutely. Judgment. Yes, good word. Judgment, correctness, fairness, courtrooms, law. I'm going to stop repeating all of them. Yes, ma'am. Yes, absolutely. That's a great image. Yes, with the with the blindfold on because justice is blind. So the the justice as an image as a as a personification with scales of justice and a blindfold on. Yeah, absolutely. What other images come to mind when you think about justice? Any other images come to mind or other words? We've mentioned like a courtroom or like Lady uh, Justice. I think, about, I think about a gavel. Like if I had to picture one, one image in my mind, it would be a gavel. Like this is, justice is being served, right? It's being carried out. Anything else y'all can think of? Do you tend to think about justice as a positive word or a negative word? If you had to sort of put it in one category or the other, which one would you put it in? You say both? I'm sorry? Positive. Okay, positive? Positive? Good, good. Okay, awesome. And it's, it, it's interesting how it, for different people, it might bring to, to mind different, different 
uh, images or different perspectives or even a, a negative connotation, right? Because a lot of times when we think about justice, we think about punishment, and we think that's something I want to avoid, and I know I'm guilty, and so I want to avoid punishment. But it's interesting, sometimes we, we think about it from a positive perspective, and I think we'll see as we go throughout tonight's lesson that it, it can be both positive and negative, or negative from the standpoint of punishment, not necessarily negative as in bad. Here's some Bible words uh, as we think about uh, the, the, the words associated with justice, because obviously we speak English, and the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And so here are some of the Hebrew and Greek words associated with justice, um, and we're also going to associate the word righteousness, because righteousness and justice are two biblical words that are so closely associated with one another, you could say that they're synonymous, or at least that they overlap, or that they go together, and you really can't have one without the other. You can't have justice without righteousness. You can't have righteousness without justice. These two ideas go, go hand in hand. So one of the words is tzedakah. Tzedakah is most commonly translated as righteousness. So the Hebrew word tzedakah is righteousness, doing the right thing, doing the right thing, righteousness. Uh, and another word closely associated, again, in the Hebrew is mishpat, mishpat. And that's, again, justice or fairness or equity, um, carrying out a judgment. So mishpat and tzedakah are the two Hebrew words we're kind of thinking about. And then the Greek words are krima, which is a judgment, most, most commonly a negative judgment or a condemnation. Again, when I say negative, I don't mean bad, right? Negative doesn't mean bad, it just means painful, right? It's something you don't want to experience. So most of the time, krima is a negative thing, a, a judgment, a judgment being passed. Um, and then dikaiosune is righteousness. And most of the time in the New Testament with the Greek, dikaiosune, righteousness and justice are very closely, like it depends on the context and how you might translate these words. And in fact, we have a lot of English words that are translated by dikaiosune and the associated related words. So words like justice, words like justify, like a person was justified, justification, righteousness, righteous. In the Greek, all of these words come from the same family of words. And so when we talk about justice and righteousness, we're talking about very closely associated things. Although in English, sometimes we tend to separate those things out, don't we? We kind of think about righteousness as our relationship with God, like that's our religious life, and then justice as our relationship with people. But in biblical terminology, in the biblical way of thinking, for the ancient Israelites or for first century Christians, there was no separation. There wasn't my religious life and my secular life. Your entire life was how you relate to God and how you relate to other people. You don't compartmentalize your life and say, well, if this is just how I'm relating to other people. I need to do justice with other people and I need to be righteous in my relationship with God. A right relationship with God is about interacting with other people in a right sort of way. It's about doing justice in everything that you do, and those two things can't be separated. To live a right life is to be right with God and to be right 
with your fellow human beings, with your neighbors, with everyone you interact with. And really, that's what justice is all about. Justice is about doing the right thing. Whatever the right thing is, that's what justice is. Justice is doing the right thing. So when we talk about God being a just God, when we say God is just and God is righteous, we talk about God's justice and God's righteousness, what we mean is God does the right thing according to the covenants that he's made with people. He keeps his promises. He does what's right. And he sets things right. He makes things right. And really, that's what real justice looks like, doesn't it? Real justice is when something gets broken, it's someone setting it right, fixing what got broken. And a lot of times, we can't do that. We, we try to do it the best we can, but we really can't bring about true justice because we can't restore what has been broken, but God can. And so when we talk about God is a just God, we're saying not just that God punishes evil, that's part of it. Punishment is part of it. But that's a very small part of it. Really what we're saying is God does what is right. God does what is right and he sets right. God to be a God of justice and righteousness is that God does what is right. And as we look through the Old Testament, as I've studied through this and looked at what other people have said, here's a list I've come up with. And so you could add some to these. I'm not saying this is exhaustive. But I believe God's justice includes these elements. So here's four elements that God's justice includes, at least these four things. And, and you can see this not only in the way that God deals with people, but also in how God expects his people to deal with each other. Because you really can't have one conversation without the other, right? You can't have the conversation about what does it mean that God is a God of justice and righteousness without thinking about, well, what does God tell his people that justice and righteousness look like for them to carry out, for them to be righteous, for them to be uh, just, for them to carry out justice. Because their justice, whether we're talking about in ancient Israel or in, in first century Christianity, for them to do justice and to live righteously is to be a reflection of God's justice and God's righteousness. So God's justice includes at least these four things. One, personal accountability, right? Personal accountability that every single person is accountable to God or to the court system for what they personally do, right? You're accountable for what you personally do. So if you take somebody's eye, somebody else doesn't get to have their eye taken out. It's your eye that gets taken out, right? You, you have to pay the penalty for the crime that you've committed. So you are personally accountable. And if somebody, somebody takes your eye, you don't get revenge on their entire village, right? The worst that can happen is that the other person's eye gets taken. You're not going to take revenge on everybody because this one crime took place. You're going to hold that one person personally accountable for their, for their uh, sin, right? For their crime. And so God holds people personally accountable and he expects justice, righteousness to hold people personally accountable for their actions. And he expects us to be personally accountable to him and to each other. That's one. Two is fairness, right? That God, God doesn't cheat anyone. God doesn't deceive anyone. God doesn't have a, a double standard. God doesn't, doesn't discriminate against anyone. God has equal weights and equal measures. And then he expects that from other people, right? He expects justice 
and righteousness for his people, that when you do business, when his people do business with each other, when they tr make a trade, he, he expects that you're not going to have one set of weights for one kind of person, and then another kind of person comes along, you don't like them very much, and so you're going to pull out a different scale for those people because you don't like them, and you're going to cheat them out of their money because you don't like them very much. That's not just. That's not righteous. Justice and righteousness are fair. They deal with people the same way. They don't discriminate. They don't cheat. They don't lie. They don't deceive because that's the way God interacts. God is fair. God is equitable. And then the third one is collective responsibility. And this is one we, we kind of struggle with because we tend to be very individualistic in our culture. So we like the personal accountability side of things, but the collective responsibility side of things, we really struggle with that. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of examples in scripture of this, aren't there? Oh, I can think about a, a few right off the top of my head that when, when Jericho, remember when the, the children of Israel go and to take the, the promised land and they, they first attack the city of Jericho and God tells them what they can't take, that they can't take these items away from the city, that this is dedicated to the Lord. Well, then they go up to the next battle, the, the battle of Ai, and then they lose that battle, right? And they're like, what? What happened? I thought God was with us. And God says, nope, somebody took something that wasn't, that wasn't supposed to be taken. And it was Achan. Do you remember? Achan stole some things from Jericho that he wasn't supposed to take, and he hid them in his tent. So the entire, the entire nation of Israel suffered in that first battle because of one person's sin. And there's a collective responsibility that I'm going to hold you all responsible you all have to make sure that nobody takes anything they're not supposed to. And if anybody takes anything they're not supposed to, you're all going to be in trouble because you have to watch each other. And then when they found out that it was Achan, his entire family was killed, right? Because there is an element of collective responsibility. It's happened in my family as well. When I was a kid, when my dad would pull the car over, he'd say, if you don't... You guys don't stop fighting back there. I'm going to pull over. I'm going to spank all of you, right? There was no, there was no, okay, how many, how many times did you do what was wrong? No, I mean, he punished all of us, right? Because there was a certain element of collective responsibility. So when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, the entire city was destroyed. And, and God held people collectively responsible. But then there was also like the days of atonement. As the day of atonement would come around annually, a sacrifice was made for the entire nation and a scapegoat was sent out with the sins of the entire nation on it. And so collectively, their sins were taken care of collectively, not individually one by one, but collectively. And so there is a sense of personal accountability, but there's also a sense of collective responsibility where an entire family says we are responsible for each other. We have responsibility to each other and a responsibility for each other. Entire communities would say, we have a responsibility to each other and for each other. Entire nations would say, we have a responsibility to each other and for each other. And God would forgive entire groups of people and God would punish entire groups of people. Now, he held each person personally accountable for their sins, but there was a certain element of collective responsibility. Number four is generosity. That every good thing, every good thing is a gift from Yahweh, right? Every good thing is a gift from God. God is a generous God. So that's part of God's justice. God's righteousness is that he is generous. 
But then there's also the expectation that if you're going to be just and you're going to be righteous, then you need to be generous just as your God is generous and you need to give things away to other people. In fact, it was part of the law that this is how righteous people live. There were four groups of people that were especially that they had to be generous to. The poor, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widows, right? The most vulnerable people of the community, again, collective responsibility. We take responsibility for the poor amongst us. We take responsibility for the fatherless amongst us. We take responsibility for the widows. We take responsibility even for the sojourners, the people who are foreigners that just happen to live here. We take responsibility for each other. And if anybody's hungry, if anybody's naked, if anybody's homeless, we take care of each other. We share generously with each other. Why? Because it's not our stuff. God's given it to us. And so we received it freely from him and we're going to freely give it to one another. That's what God's righteousness and justice look like towards his people. And then he expects his people to reflect that same kind of righteousness and justice to others. In fact, modern day uh, Jews will even use the Hebrew word tzedakah, as we talked about before, righteousness, to talk about what, what we would typically talk about as charity. And the way we think about charity, because Again, we tend to be individualistic, right? And we take responsibility for ourselves and for nobody else. And if we give something to someone else, it's purely, purely voluntary, right? It's purely voluntary. It's totally our choice. But the way that the word sedaka works is that, yes, it's your choice, but it is also your responsibility because that's what God has done for you. Because God has given you these things to do this with. That's why you have an abundance. You have an abundance so that you can be generous with it. And if you're not being generous with it, you're not being just. You're not carrying out justice. So we, re, we, we get to the New Testament and we read parables like the, the, the rich fool. Remember, he has this bumper crop and he says, huh, I don't know what to do with all this food. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then that way I can just sit back and relax and enjoy my life. And God says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Well, we read that story and we think, well, what did he do wrong? Or, or we read the rich man and Lazarus, and, and the rich man ends up in torment. And there's nothing in the story to say, why did he end up in torment? Well, we read it and we say, what did he do wrong other than being rich? He didn't share. And when you don't share and when you're not generous, you're not being righteous. You're not being just. We read the story we did this past week. Uh, I just published a podcast episode on this exact topic. And the the guy that I had on as a guest talked about Boaz, and that's exactly, that's a perfect example of just, of justice and righteousness. Do you remember the story of Boaz? And Boaz has Ruth come into his, his farming operation, and he doesn't just leave the edges of the field as he was required to by law, he makes sure that his workers give her food to eat. It's not because he, she was pretty and he had a crush on her. It was because that's what righteous people do. That's what justice looks like. That's what God's justice looks like. That's what God has done for his people. And he expects his people to reflect that kind of justice into the world. So again, those four areas we see all throughout the Old Testament. And we should see them as we read through the New Testament. That this is the way God's justice works and the way he expects his people to reflect his just, justice, personal accountability, fairness, collective responsibility, 
and generosity. And I think a great passage that sort of bears all of this out is in Ezekiel chapter 18. So if you have your Bible, we're going to read the whole chapter of Ezekiel 18, assuming that I can get through it in the time allotted. So Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 1. Ezekiel says to the, to the, the fellow exiles, he says, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now think about that proverb for just a second. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It doesn't really make sense, does it? Because if, if someone eats sour grapes, whose teeth or whose mouth gets a funny feeling? That person, right? The, the father doesn't eat sour grapes and then his, his ch- children have their, their mouth pucker up, right? That's not what happens. The father eats the sour grapes and the, fa- the father's mouth puckers up. But the way the Israelites, the Jewish people that are living in exile are talking about it, they're saying it's not fair. This isn't fair, God. You're not being just. You're not being righteous. You're, you're not a just God because our fathers ate sour grapes, but it's our teeth that are set on edge. We're suffering the consequences for the things they did. We were born in captivity. They were the ones that sinned, and then we got, they got sent into exile, and here we are, the next generation of exiles. It's time for us to go home. We should get to go home because... It wasn't our sins that got us sent here, right? And so they're accusing God of being unjust. They're accusing God of not being righteous because they're saying, you're holding us accountable for our father's sins. Look at verse three. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now, I've You probably remember me saying this, but when you read soul in the Bible, it's not talking about a disembodied spirit. It's talking about a person, right? And specifically, it's talking about an individual person. And so he says, your soul, you as an individual, you as a person, you belong to me. The the souls of the fathers and the souls of the son and the soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous, this is verse five, if a man is righteous and does what is just, and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of minstrel impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment. Now notice he's describing what it looks like to be righteous and just, right? He's describing this is what it looks like to be righteous and just. And what's going to happen to a person who's righteous and just? He says, this person does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man. He walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Now again, do you see how all four of those elements that we talked about before are present in this description of righteousness and justice. Personal accountability, that's what this entire chapter is about, personal accountability. It says he's going to live because he acted righteously. He acted justly. He did the right thing. So he's personally accountable. I know who who is mine, and I know who's not mine. I know who's doing what they should, and I know who's not doing what they should. So you see personal accountability. You see fairness, right? 
You see that, that he doesn't oppress anyone. He's not a thief. He doesn't lend at interest. He doesn't take any profit. He, he withholds his hand from injustice. He commits no robbery. So you see the, the personal accountability, like he doesn't, he doesn't engage in sexual immorality, and, and also he executes fairness and justice. You see also the collective responsibility, don't you? That he gives bread to the hungry, he covers the naked, he, he takes care of his community, and he, obviously he's generous. He feeds the hungry, he gives clothing to the, those that don't have it. And so God says, if somebody lives with this kind of justice and this kind of righteousness, I see it. I know it. I know who's living that way, and I'm going to take care of that person, and that person is going to live. But then he says in verse 10, he says, but then if that man, the righteous man, this, this just and righteous man, if he has a son who is violent and a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself, the, the father, did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. So again, God says, so if this righteous man who's done everything the way he was supposed to, he lived righteously and justly, if he has a son who doesn't live righteously and justly, who lives an unjust life and who commits injustice, I see that too. And I'm going to punish him too. And he's going to pay for his own sins. He doesn't get a pass because his dad was good. Well, you know, he had a really good dad. His dad did really well. His dad was really fair and just, so I'm going to give him a pass. God says, no, it's not how it works. I'm going to hold him personally accountable. Verse 14. Now, suppose this man fathers a son. So the wicked man has a son. And he says, now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. So he says, and then it's possible there's a, there's a good man, right? A righteous man. And then he has a son who's wicked and does all kinds of bad stuff. And then the wicked son has a son that says, wow, I, I want to be like my grandpa. I don't want to be like my dad. My dad did all kinds of horrible, oppressive things. And he wasn't generous. And he took no accountability for himself. And he wasn't responsible for his community. And he wasn't fair. And he was oppressive. I don't want to live like that. And he turns away from his father's ways. Then God says, I, I see that too. I see that this, this son isn't walking in his father's footsteps and he's going to live. I'm going to take care of him. I'm not going to punish him because of his father and say, well, listen, buddy, you're doing well, but your father was horrible. And so I'm going to punish you because of what your father did. God says, I, I know who's doing righteousness and who's doing justice and who's not. He says in verse 18, as for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what his, is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. Now again, we have to kind of put this back into the context 
of Ezekiel, don't we? And remember what this entire conversation is about. That the people of Israel, the Jewish people that are living in Babylon in exile, and they're, they're suffering the consequences of their parents, because their parents did what was evil. In fact, several generations, they, their parents did what was evil, and now they're in exile, and they're saying, this is all their fault. It's all because of what our parents and our grandparents did. God, you're not being just because we're not gonna, getting to go home. And God is constantly saying, whoa, 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 maybe it's not because of their sin. Maybe it's because of your sin. Maybe you need to take responsibility. Maybe you need to be accountable for what you're doing. The soul, verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So he's asking them, will you continue in the footsteps of your parents? Your parents were unjust. Your parents committed injustice. Your parents were not faithful to me. They weren't faithful to each other. They didn't carry out righteousness and justice. They, they didn't love me and be devoted to me. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. And so now the question isn't what did they do and what are the consequences for what they did? The question is what will you do now? Will you be like the son in the parable the grandson, really, who said, ah, dad really did a lot of bad things, and I'm not going to go the way my father went. You have a choice. Every single one of us has a choice. Whether or not we will be just, whether or not we will be righteous, whether or not we will do what the last generation did, whether, whether it was good or whether it was evil, will you continue on that path, or will you choose to walk in the path of God? Will you choose to walk in the righteousness of the Lord? He says in verse 21, this is where it gets really beautiful. He says, but if a wicked person, if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he's committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. See, this is another element of God's generosity, his generous justice. God's generous justice forgives. He says, even if, even if somebody is wicked, even if somebody has done all kinds of unjust things, even if somebody has done all kinds of unrighteous things, if he'll just stop and turn around and do the right thing and begin to live a just and righteous life, I'll forgive him. And I'm not going to even hold his past sins against him. God is saying to Israel, not only am I not going to hold your father's sins against you, I'm not even going to hold your sins against you if, if you will just repent. If you will just turn. If you will just begin to do the right thing. He says in verse 24, but when a righteous person, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, again, notice how those two are contrasted with each other, righteousness and injustice, and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. And he says, don't think you can rest on your laurels either. 
Don't think that you can say, well, listen, I've been doing a really good job so far. You know, I, I think at this point I deserve to have a little fun and do whatever I want to. No, 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 stop. You, no, you have to decide. Every one of you has to decide. Will I walk in the path of my fathers? Will I walk in the path of God? Will, will I continue on a path of righteousness? Will I continue on a path of wickedness? If you're on a path of wickedness and you turn, I'll forgive you. But if you're on a path of righteousness and you turn away from righteousness and you do wickedness, I'm going to punish you. You all have to make a choice. How will you live? Will you live out my righteousness and justice? But again, all of this hinges on the question, is God righteous? Is God just? Because they're accusing God of being unrighteous. They're accusing God of being unjust. He says in verse 25, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Again, God is saying, how am I being unjust here? I'm giving you a choice. I'm setting before you this choice. And it's the same choice that your fathers had. It's the same choice your grandfathers had. It's the same choice everybody has had. Everybody has had the same choice. Choose righteousness and live. Choose unrighteousness and die. You have a choice. You've been on a path of wickedness. Your fathers were on a path of wickedness, but you don't have to continue down that path. And certainly don't use the fact that you're suffering the consequences of their misbehavior as an excuse to say, ha, it doesn't matter what we do. We can do whatever we want to. God is unfair. And God says, no, I'm not unfair. In fact, it's y'all that have been, I'm putting y'all into the text, but it, it's y'all that have been unfair. You are the ones that have been unjust. Watch me, test me. I am a righteous God. I am a just God. He says in verse 29, Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. And I love that, don't you? This is what God's justice looks like. This is what God's righteousness looks like. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of who? Anyone. Anyone. I don't want the righteous to die. I also don't want the wicked to die. I don't want anybody to die. I don't want, if your parents were great or your parents were horrible, if you were great or you were horrible, I don't want any of you to die. But the choice is yours, whether or not you will turn Will you stay on a path of righteousness? Will you stay on a path of wickedness? Will you follow your fathers or will you follow my way of righteousness? Now again, we have this tendency, don't we? We want God, we want God to be generous to us, 
but not generous to the people we don't like very much. I think about Jonah, don't you? You remember the story of Jonah? This is what the story of Jonah is about, isn't it? That God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach to Nineveh, I'm going to destroy you, right? And, and Jonah likes the idea of God destroying Nineveh because Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, their greatest enemies at the time, and God, Jonah wants God to destroy Nineveh. But he knows God, and he knows God is merciful, God is slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, and I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get there, I'm going to start preaching, they're going to repent, God's going to be merciful, God's going to be gracious, he's going to forgive them, he's not going to destroy them, because if my God, uh, he's just so gracious, and he doesn't like to destroy people, and sometimes I just want him to bring down the fire and brimstone, right? That's the way Jonah thought, and he says, that's why I ran away, because I knew you were going to do this, God, I knew you were going to forgive them, I knew you were going to be merciful to them, and if, if Jonah knew that, then not only should he have respected that, but in fact, he should have reflected that. That's what it looks like for us to be just, for us to be righteous, not for us to rub our hands together and say, oh, I can't wait for God to smite those people. No, God says, it's not my will that anyone should perish. I want everyone to come to life. In fact, this promise right here that runs throughout the prophets of a new heart and a new spirit, this is what the gospel is all about. This opportunity to repent and turn and to experience life, this is what Jesus brings, isn't it? Not just to Israel, but to the Jew and to us, to the Gentiles, to the world, to the nations. This message that Ezekiel was giving to the exiles now is given to all of us. And in Christ Jesus, that forgiveness has been made available to all of us to experience God's justice, to be forgiven by God, to say, I want to be set right. In fact, again, to go back to the beginning, God does what's right and sets right what went wrong. That's what God's justice is all about. God does what's right. He does what he's promised to do. He does what is fair. He does what is generous. He does what is good. God does what is right, but he also restores. He sets right what went wrong. He sets right what went wrong. And guess what went wrong? You and me. People, we went wrong, and he sets us right. By justifying us, again, remember the related word there, justification and justice, he makes us righteous. He sets us right. He forgives us all of our sins. But then he also gives us a new heart and a new spirit to do what is right so that now we can reflect the righteousness of God in the way that we live our lives. Righteousness doesn't mean perfection. We're not perfect. We understand that. But with this new heart and this new spirit that the Lord has given us, with the example that Jesus has given us, we can live out the righteousness and justice of God, which means we can, we can emphasize things like personal accountability and fairness, and collective responsibility, and generosity, and live out God's righteousness, because that's what God has done for us. God does what is right, and sets right what went wrong, and we are the ones that went wrong, and now he's set us right by forgiving us, and teaching us how to walk in his ways of righteousness, and justice, and holiness. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, we are Father, we are incredibly thankful that you are a God of justice and that your justice is generous. 
that you do what you've promised to do. Even when we've been unfaithful, you have been faithful to your promises to bless all nations of mankind through the seed of Abraham. And Father, now that we have received these very great promises and because we have had the opportunity to turn from our wicked ways and turn to you, we pray, Father, that you help us to receive your forgiveness, your righteousness, and to reflect your righteousness and your justice in the way that we deal with one another, in the way that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, we pray that you will help us to live in continual and constant gratitude for the justice and the righteousness that you've shown us. Help us, Father, to be merciful and kind to everyone with whom we come into contact. Father, help us to remember that you take no pleasure in the death of anyone, but that you wish that all would repent and experience life through Jesus. And we thank you for this opportunity. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.